So today's reading uh, comes from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, which can be found in page 1006 in the Church Bibles. This passage is titled, Jesus Clears the Temple Courts. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tom. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would come and take these words and make them words of life for us. Father, we pray for your transforming work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a world where it's so easy to lose that sense of being shocked, unless snow comes for a few days, then we're all shocked. But other than that, we see the pictures from places like Syria, and they begin to lose their shock value because we see them so often. And whether you get your news from newspapers or from the TV or on the web, all those stuff that's there, we end up reading stuff, and it just begins to lose its shock value. And there are some times, I think, when we're reading Bible passages that we lose, that they are truly shocking. When I was, uh, last week, I happened, I, every couple of months, I do the youth work with the 11 to 14-year-olds on a Sunday morning. It's good for me to meet with them, and it's good for them uh, to, to, to see that the vicar doesn't have two heads and all those sort of things. And we were, I was talking with this one last, last week, and she was, um, we were talking about what she thought about Jesus. We were talking about her journey of faith, and I asked her who, what she thought about Jesus, and she went, he's weird. At which point I go, oh, hold on a minute, that wasn't quite the answer I was expecting. And as she said that, I went, why why do you think he's weird? And she said, well, it's all that stuff he does, like throwing people out of the temple and all that sort of stuff. It's so weird. And I think you and I, perhaps, as adults, have read this story a number of times, and we sometimes lose the shock of what's going on here. She had was absolutely shocked that this nice baby that she celebrated every Christmas was doing this sort of stuff. 
John, in his gospel, recounts Jesus entering the temple at the beginning of his ministry, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke have at the end of his public ministry. Those are the ones we tend to read more. But on two occasions, then, Jesus enters the temple and causes uproar because of the scandalous nature of his actions. Why would he do that? Well, at the end of his ministry, just before his crucifixion, he enters the temple and accuses those who are trading there of being robbers. That's the one we will read in a few days at Easter. That's the one in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But today we go back to the very start of his public ministry and we'll see that this cleansing of the temple has a different point. It has a different purpose. The danger is that we, because we've clocked the the one at the end of his life, we forget that this one is actually slightly different. Of course, there are some superficial similarities. It's the season of Passover. It's the selling of animals. There are the scattering of the money changers. But as Jesus was only in Jerusalem at the major festivals, and as the money changers weren't there all the time, that shouldn't surprise us. They only came to the temple when there was good business to be done. They weren't there all the time. What will surprise us is why Jesus acts like this on this occasion and how he expects us to respond to him and his demands. If you have the church Bible, do keep it open at page 1006. You can check that I'm telling you the truth then. Firstly then, the need for an undistracted relationship with God. The need for an undistracted relationship with God. The temple at Passover was a very special place and time to the Jews. It was even more important than a church at Christmas or at Easter. It was a time and a place to remember all that God had done in rescuing his people and making them into a nation. The cattle and sheep and doves were used in sacrificial worshippers at the temple. For worshippers coming from a long distance, actually it was really useful that they were there. Imagine trying to travel, bringing your sacrificial animals with you. That'd be a pain, wouldn't it? And actually, the fact that you could purchase them near the temple was brilliant. It was really helpful. How many of us this week, because of the snow, have found convenience stores really convenient? And actually, that's the point here. To have the, the, the sheep and the, the cows and the, I suppose, doves were slightly easier to carry, but to have them available was really useful. But the problem was that by Jesus' time, the market had moved inside the temple courts itself. It was in the outer court of the Gentiles that the money changers and the animal traders were. At this point, we need to note there's no evidence here that these animal, changers or mo- uh, animal traders or money changers or temple authorities were corrupt. The text doesn't tell us that. That's later on. When, verse 13, it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to the temple. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Notice no word of corruption here. So he made a whip out of the cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheet and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their temple tables. You see, Jesus' complaint here is not that they're guilty of extortion or corrupt practice or robbery. That's true at the end of his ministry, but not here at the beginning. What the issue is, is this, verse 16. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. 
Stop turning my father's house into a market. They have made the temple into a marketplace. Instead of prayer and worship, there's the sound of money clinking, cattle's bellowing, and sheep bleating. And do you know, it'd be pretty difficult to worship with that going on, wouldn't it? Just imagine if somebody came in this morning with a whole load of sheep and cattle. Be pretty tough not to be distracted, wouldn't it? You and I would be going, what's going on? It'd be noisy. Instead of the brokenness and sorrow for sin, instead of praise of God and prayer, in the temple there's the noise of market and the commotion of commerce. The sacrificial system is still in place. It's still being exercised. But the problem is that the worship of God is distracted by what's going on. And so Jesus comes and cleanses the temple so that God can again be worshipped from the heart without distraction, without influences that mean God is no longer central. That's what verse 17 tells us, which is quoting Psalm 69, verse 9. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. When the psalmist writes that, he finds himself committed to the temple and the very commitment means he makes enemies because he wants God to be at the center of everything. And Jesus' cleansing of the temple is all about that. His concern is for true worship that people are not distracted from being able to meet with God. Now, as we'll see in a moment, that place will change from the temple in Jerusalem to the person of Jesus. But before we get to that, we need to see that Jesus' priority is clear. He wants people to be able to worship God without distraction. Now, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because actually, it challenges us to think about... What distracts us from the worship of God as we come together as a community or me as an individual? What are the things that, as we gather together, make sure that we worship God without distraction, that he is the center of all we do, he is the one we focus on? We have a staff meeting on a, a Monday morning. And uh, David, my curate, I've asked his permission to tell this story, by the way. David, my curate, wasn't very awake this particular Monday morning. He was having a moment where he wasn't really very with it. David's very, very, very bright. He makes me feel, yeah, well, he has, PA, he has MAs and MTHs coming out of his ears. So normally, he's really, really, really thought through. And I can't remember how the conversation came up, but it came up and he said, uh, and he said this phrase, he said, Anthony, you're king here, aren't you? And I went, what? No, I'm not. Jesus is king here. He is the king of kings. It's very easy for us to get distracted onto people. May I say, it's very easy for you where you are now to be distracted by your need for a new vicar and to lose focus that Jesus is actually the center here. He is the one who is at the heart of everything. And that hasn't changed. And it won't change by God's grace. It is so easy for us to get distracted by other things 
so that the worship of God isn't at the center of our lives as a community or as individuals. And you and I need to resist those things. We need to see that Jesus is passionate about us not being distracted from being committed to worshipping God. Now, I don't know what are the things in your life that distract you from that. I know you'll have them because we all do. That's the battle of faith, isn't it? That Jesus remains central. We happen to have just had to move my daughter and her three young children into a new house. It's incredibly distracting, I can assure you. What are the things that are in danger of distracting you? Will you do the equivalent of Jesus and drive them out? That's the question, isn't it? You see, it's not enough just to know their distractions. It's actually we have to do something about them. Jesus just doesn't leave the, them in the courts. He drives them out. As a church community, as individuals, are we committed to an undistracted relationship with God? Will we do everything we can to make sure that's true for us as a church family and for us as individuals? Firstly, then, the need for an undistracted relationship with God. Secondly, the basis of a right relationship with God. Verse 18, the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. This building project was relatively easy then. And you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now it's at this point that the temple authorities come and demand that Jesus explain by what right he has done that. And you can understand that. I guess if somebody ran into church this morning and started turning over this table, Rachel as leader or the church wardens might run up and go, What do you think you're doing? But in this case, there are two problems. Firstly, they don't reflect on what has happened. They're more interested in their rights and their precedent than thinking about what has happened. You see, the disciples remembered zeal for your house will consume me. The temple authorities got nowhere near that. They're worried that things aren't being done right they're not so worried about what it all means. But the second problem is this. They ask for a sign. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? That means that at the very least, they thought he might be somebody from God. You see, what would we do if somebody came in and do that? We'd immediately escort them out, wouldn't we? Whereas they go, what's the sign that you've got the authority to do this? In that very sentence, they recognize 
that this might be what God was doing. And to try to treat God like this, to ask him for a sign, is at best foolhardy, at worst trying to test God. And Jesus' response just confuses them. And we must be honest that it would us too. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, their misunderstanding was because they're only thinking on a physical level. Actually, as you go through the beginning of John's Gospel, that's everybody's problem. So next we'll get to Nicodemus, and he goes, can I go back into my mother's womb? He thinks on a physical level. Then we get to the Samaritan woman. You haven't got a bucket. How are you going to give us water? She again thinks on a physical level. That's the nature of the beginning of John. Jesus keeps on trying to get them to look up. But they can only think about the physical nature of life. But John tells us that Jesus is redefining what temple means. What was the point of the temple? It was the place to meet God. That's what the Jews did there. It was the place to worship God. What does Jesus do by his life, death, and resurrection? He shows us who God is. He shows us who we should worship. He shows us everything the temple pointed to. What happened in the temple? Sacrifices. What does Jesus come to do? to sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. And within three days, he would rise again, showing that this sacrifice was fully effective and complete. The way to God is open. Death is defeated. Life is on offer. And the truth is, if that didn't happen, if the resurrection doesn't happen, Jesus is a fraud. If the resurrection doesn't happen, if the body hasn't gone, the whole Christian faith falls apart. We do a thing called Christianity Explained. It's a bit like an Alpha course. And I say to them at the beginning of the course, if the body is ever found of Jesus, ever found in Israel, I will have to start being an accountant again. I haven't been an accountant for 30 years. The likelihood of me being able to be an accountant again is zilch. But I would have to find something else to do. We ought to shut up shop. Give these buildings to everybody else. That's how crucial the resurrection is. Paul tells us that if we haven't, if the resurrection is isn't true, we are most to be pitied of all people. But the great news is that it is, of course, true. Now the disciples don't understand this yet. But after his resurrection, it would all fall in place. At this point, they haven't got a clue. Uh, We've started watching the new Endeavour series. Don't tell me too many. I've only watched the first one so far. I never get it right. Never before the end do I know what's going on. You may be more intelligent than me and get there. And that's like the disciples. Until the resurrection, they don't understand. But what Jesus is pointing to, even now, is that the only basis of a right relationship with him, with God, is through him and what he will do. Now, the big question then is, why bother to cleanse the temple? Why not leave it just to go on in its merry way? It's irrelevant now, isn't it? So why does he bother to do it? And the answer to that is he wants them to see that the temple itself, the sacrifices in the temple if put in their right place, if properly understood, would point the Jews to their need of a saviour. 
to their need of Jesus. He cleanses the temple so that they'll understand what the temple's really about. That's the point. So today we come to remind ourselves that the only basis for a right relationship with God is Jesus' life, death and resurrection. He leads the perfect life I can't lead. He dies my death so that God's righteous anger at my sin is dealt with. He rises to life so that death cannot hold me. That's what each of us needs to be able to say, that we know that to be true. Somebody else can't know that for us. We have to know it for ourselves. And if we know that for ourselves, you see, Jesus' point is this, that we will want a life that is full of undistracted worship of God. That's the point. If you've truly understood all this, then, says Jesus, you will not be distracted from worshipping me, from following me, from putting me first. C.T. Studd said, my greatest desire is to worship my Lord. Billy Graham was asked one time, about 20 years ago, I think, he preached before the Queen at Sandringham, and this reporter came up to him and said, what was it like to preach before the Queen? He said, no different really, I preach before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords every time I stand up. The reporter went, oh, what do I do now? Don't know what to ask. That whole sense, you see, that we live our life before the King of Kings and Lords of Lords. If we've understood all that Jesus has done for us, then nothing can distract us from developing and growing in our relationship with him, from worshipping God with heart, soul, body and mind. About two years ago, my mother died about uh, age 94. About a month before she, uh, she died, she rang me. She'd quite often ring me. I was the, the theological consultant she wanted, really. So she'd ring me and she'd go, Anthony, you're the vicar. Answer me this question. It was fab. 92 and still wanting to grow as a Christian. 93, still wanting to grow as a Christian. 94, still wanting to grow as a Christian. There is no age limit to us growing and being undistracted. How much do you want to grow in your relationship with God? Jesus wants it so much that he was willing to clear a temple to make sure that they could. What are the things he wants to clear out of your life so that you will grow? As we close, there's a little sting in the tail in the two verses that weren't in the reading. I'm just going to read them. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need human testimony about them, for he knew what was in them. Don't think 
you can con God. Don't think you can con Jesus. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. That is a great encouragement and a bit of a challenge, isn't it? How many times do we sort of go, God, I hope you can't see this. He knows. He knows whether you're fully committed. He knows how distracted or undistracted you've been. You cannot fool him. And he still loves you. He still lived your, the perfect life you couldn't live. He still died the death in your place. He still rose again. The question he asked you this morning is, how are you going to respond? Are you going to be committed to growing? Are you going to let me, says God, clear out the things that get in the way of your relationship with me? How will you answer? Will you let the Spirit of God come and change you? Change you to be the person God wants you to be with an undistracted relationship with him. Let's pray together. We're going to have a moment's quiet. There might be something that you know has been distracting you and you just want to say, Lord, take this distraction away. It may be a sin that you know you haven't let go of, that you haven't asked him to take away because actually you quite enjoy it. It may be some concern or worry that just you need to lay at the foot of the cross. Whatever it is, take a moment and take it to the Lord. Spirit of God, come upon us. Help us as a community not to be distracted by the need for a vicar or anything else that would lead us away from worshipping you in spirit and in truth. As individuals, Father, come. Help us to be undistracted willing to grow, walking before you day by day. Lord Jesus, come. Remind us of all that you have done for us and help us to walk in the light of that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>